are listening to the online sermon ministry of Calvary Baptist Church in the Dalles, Oregon. Thank you for joining us as we search Holy Scripture together in order to edify the church, proclaim the gospel, and glorify God. If you've got your Bible, turn to Psalm 1. This is our second week in this journey through the story of the Bible and, and, our, and week two of what is the Bible. And we just want to credit uh, the Bible Project and the Churches of Reality San Francisco and Bridgetown in Portland because they've charted a course and they've laid out a teaching series uh, given four or five different options, different avenues in which uh, churches can follow through the Bible. And we're going to start... Uh, in Psalm 1 this morning as we talk about what is the Bible. Before we do that, if you're a note taker, I want you to write down two things, or I can send these out uh, via email, but two books I would want to recommend to you to read and supplement to your study of the Bible this uh, year. One I quoted last week, and it's, it's titled, Is My Bible the Inspired Word of God? Is, is my Bible the inspired word of God? From Ed Goodrick and uh, Ray Lubeck, and it's a short read. It's not too academic, but it's all about some of what you saw, the compilation of Scripture. How did we get these books, and how can we know that what I'm reading today in my modern translation is actually accurate to the originals? And it's a really helpful book for that sort of questioning of transmission and translation and reliability, and uh, so I highly recommend that book. The other is by Eugene Peterson, and it's called Eat This Book. And it's a devotional reading of Scripture, and he's going to lay out a chart saying how we read it matters. And so you don't just come to Scripture for information about God. It's not just like a text to learn details about God and about salvation, but rather something meant to draw us into worship as we see who God is, draw us into prayer and obedience. So we're going to talk a lot about the Bible and what is it, but I want to start right here in Psalm 1. And then uh, if you're a a turn ahead and be prepared kind of person, 2 Timothy 3, our text from last week, that's where we're going to end again. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Can you picture that? Just let's, let's get in. This is beautiful Hebrew poetry, but you can picture what this is like. Think of this, this tree, strong, firmly planted, deep roots along a beautiful stream, and it's lush, and it's green, and it's healthy. And if you think of it as a metaphor for life, as the psalmist gives us, I really want that. I really want that, that life of this tree, uh, healthy, vibrant, growing, bearing fruit, prospering in every way. That's my heart, and I believe that's your heart, and that is really the heart of all humanity. We want that Psalm 1 tree life. And yet so often, you know, we feel like a, like a desert cactus, sort of prickly and dry or isolated. Sometimes we feel like tumbleweeds just being blown by the winds of life. And yet God gives us a vision of, of a life that's deeply rooted in him. And I don't know if you've ever thought about like, man, why, 
why does life feel so difficult and empty and dry? And as I look around and at the chaos of the world, why, why can't it be more like Psalm 1? And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but it's certainly not for lack of information about life and about the world. Right here, right? In my pocket, in the palm of my hand, I can access any work of literature or art or any song or any lecture, any thesis, any dissertation, any history, and I don't have to just read it. I could watch movies or documentaries. I can go learn any written language. I could potentially learn how to fix my own transmission and then give myself stitches uh, when I'm done. (laughs) All, All of the wisdom of human history in your pocket. But why aren't we more wise? It it doesn't seem to translate all that information. It's not translated into wisdom. It hasn't translated into this tree life of Psalm 1. And for all the knowledge we have, we continue to act unwise, biting, devouring one another, as the Bible calls it. We're bitterly divided quickly offended, anxious about life and the world at levels never seen before, that anxiety and depression are the spirit of our age. But in the midst of this, we we get this. This is offered to us to, to be like a tree firmly planted by a stream, lush, green, growing, bearing fruit. Picture it. Imagine it in your mind's eye, these, these branches giving shade and shelter. You look up, you see me, I'm in my tree stand up there hunting deer. It's this perfect symbol of everything good in life. No, no deer hunters. All right. I thought I'd get a shout out from you, LeBreton, on that one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Well, how do I get that life? Well, if you look at the first of it, the first part of Psalm 1, it, it, to have this life of the tree includes a rejection of the counsel of the wicked. To reject those who question what God has said, to reject those who entertain foolishness, to walk away from those who engage in hostility and division. What we read about in 2 Timothy 3 in Paul's warning about error to Timothy. Timothy, be careful. In the last day, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, without self-control, brutal, people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness and denying its power. And so blessed is is the man or the woman, the one who, who doesn't walk in that way, doesn't sit in the seat of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Instead, how do you get to life? His delight is in the law of the Lord. In the word of the Lord, in the truth of the Lord, in the ways of the Lord, in the revelation of the Lord. That that becomes the delight, the thirst, the hunger. And on that he meditates day and night. That that person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So before we even talk too much about what the Bible is, is, is this our posture towards God's word? Is this our heart for God's revelation? Do you, do you delight in the law of the Lord, in the way of the Lord? Do you meditate on it, on it day and night? 
And I would just say, it, it, we, we all want that tree planted, that good tree life. It will require not only the spirit of God, but the power of God and the ways of God to get it. You have to, you have to put in the work to get there. The Bible doesn't read itself is something I've always said. It's like, like God does all the work of salvation through the gospel, but this process of becoming more like him really involves me sitting down and opening my Bible, reading it, seeking to understand it, praying through it. John writes this in 1 John. He says, anyone who claims life in Jesus' name must walk as Jesus walked. And last week we looked at Jesus and his respect and his uh, understanding of God's word. You cannot have the life and the peace and the goodness of God while at the same time rejecting, avoiding, or neglecting the word of God and the ways of God. If you don't delight in the law of God, if you don't meditate on his law day and night, the contrast here in Psalm 1 verse 4 is like that's the wicked. That's what the wicked do. You get this contrast of the righteous who delight in God in his ways, meditate on God in his ways. They're like a tree firmly planted. Not so are the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. And so God's revelation to us in Scripture is so helpful for the life of Jesus. We see Jesus in Scripture, and we find what it looks like to, to love him and to live after his ways and to follow him. And so when storms come, the trees with deep roots, they stand. Charles Spurgeon used to say all the time that a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. All right, this Bible's pretty new. I love it when you see a Christian with just a dog-eared, bookmarked, underlined Bible. And he says, yeah, if your Bible's falling apart because you've been meditating on it day and night, your life probably isn't. And he doesn't mean that like your circumstances are necessarily so much better, but he means that when the storms come, that you've spent so much time with the Lord and seeking the Lord that you'll be able to stand firm. And you'll know the ways of God. Billy Graham says this, if you're ignorant of God's word, you will always be ignorant of God's will. You're gonna hear this quote over and over. This is one of my favorite quotes about the Bible in this uh, work that we're doing, a year of biblical literacy. And it says this, and it gets to a little bit of what we talked about last week. If you want to be changed, if you want to see the life of Christ through the spirit of Christ poured out in your life, seeking him in his word, here we go. The Bible is transformational. It'll only change you when it's welcomed as formational. Discipleship, then, is about crawling up inside the biblical story and taking up residence there. In the process, the biblical story crawls up inside us and takes residence there. And so when, when we come to, to God's word, when we come to scripture and we accept it as authoritative truth, as foundational and formational, it does have the power to change us, the power to root us so deeply in Christ that you can experience this life described in Psalm 1. And the reason the written word has the ability to, to, to do that, to shape us and transform us, is because it points to Jesus, the living word. And so here we go, 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week and just flesh this out a little bit further. What is the Bible? What, what really is happening here? Paul writes to Timothy, verse 14, As for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are what? 
The scriptures, you know the scriptures, Timothy. They are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's what scripture exists to do, to point you towards faith in Christ Jesus. So if you're familiar with the Bible project, this first point will sound familiar. What is the Bible? It is a unified story leading to Jesus. Able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. Jesus himself says this in John 5. He says, you search the scriptures diligently, right? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And he's like, he says, you're right because they point to me. They bear witness of me. And so this is the primary purpose of the scriptures, to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. They, they point us to Jesus. I've got a book on my desk called Stormfront. Stormfront, the good news of God. And it talks about this, how this is all bound up in the gospel. And they write this, the gospel is first of all about God's faithfulness, about God's triumph over death, and about God's new purposes for the world that are revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is what the Bible does. It gives us Jesus. It points us to the truth of Jesus. C.S. Lewis says it this way. It is Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. The Bible, read in the right spirit, and with the guidance of good teachers, will bring us to him. And so as Paul's writing to Timothy, he's reminding him, Timothy, all of Scripture exists for this purpose, to point you to Jesus, to make you wise uh, for salvation in his name, to show you who is Jesus. And so implications of that are really important. So as you're reading through some difficult books in your Old Testament, let's say you're in the Minor Prophets, well, what is this story about? Is this just a historical account of a certain prophet to a certain person? Think of the book of Jonah. What is Jonah about? You know the story, yeah? And so is the book of Jonah, is it, is, it, is it just meant to teach us about how important it is to obey God the first time? I mean, certainly we learn that, like, oh yeah, if God calls you to do a thing, you should probably do that thing. Is it just about repentance, about what happens when the word of God goes to a city and calls a, a people to repentance? Right, and so you're wrestling through Jonah and you're like, well, this is a wild story. There's some very interesting things in here. But then you get to the gospels and Jesus says that was a sign. He calls it the sign of Jonah. And he says it's about him, right? Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three nights, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says that was a, that's a, really about a sign pointing towards me. And so if it's a unified story that points us towards salvation and, and sort of unfolds and reveals the gospel over and over, that means we have to really read all of it and we have to read it through the lens of the gospel. And so we don't get to leave out books that you don't like. Sometimes I have to remind myself that about my attitude towards certain books that are just a lot harder to read. I have to go, no, there's a truth. This is, first of all, God's revelation and word to me is from God. And it's going to point me to Jesus. It affects how we read it. Tim Keller says it this way. Often we read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. It is not. 
It's not disconnected, and they're not just morality tales. Rather, it comprises a single story telling us how the human race got into its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come to put things right. We learn the gospel, the story of God's faithfulness to save a people for himself, to save people like the Ninevites and people like you and me. And we're able to become wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. Who's, current, who's in the Bible Project uh, read-through with us right now? Just curious if any of my app friends. Good. It's been awesome seeing, seeing people in there. If you're not on it yet, jump on. We're using uh, the Bible Project app to read through Scripture. We just finished Genesis. There's a lot in there. And as you're in like Genesis 20, 25, 27, 30, story after story of the train wreck and the shipwreck of human lives, And what's happening in there, Keller goes on to say, is is like Jesus has come to put things right and the Bible repeatedly, he says, shows us weak people who don't deserve God's grace, don't seek it, and don't appreciate it even after they have received it. And that this is the biblical story arc into which every individual scriptural narrative fits. The gospel making us wise for salvation through Jesus. All right, enough on that. Second point, what is the Bible? Well, Timothy, Paul writes, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's given by God, inspired by God, breathed out by him. And so when you open your Bible, it's important to remember that while it was written in human hands, uh, by human hands and human words, it is both divine and human book. God breathed. We could spend months talking about this. Uh, And often, we struggle to understand how does that work? What does inspiration mean? N.T. Wright says it this way, inspiration is a shorthand way of talking about the belief that by his spirit, God guided the very different writers and editors so that the books they produced were the books God intended his people to have. So when you read the Gospel of Luke and then the account of Acts and you're like, like Luke's sitting down with people and interviewing people and he's compiling a history and, and you know, he's left some things out and included others. And we see John doing the same thing. Like, well, I've left some stuff out and I've given you other things. How is this working? Because clearly there's some human personality and some human perspective involved. And yet God is giving his people what he intended them to have by breathing and inspiring this work. Peter writes about it this way in Second Peter. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. To receive scripture as both human and divine means that we recognize that this isn't just people sitting down writing their opinion, that God is speaking through them. He is breathing out and inspiring this story. And so you come to different genres. You read, the, you know, you read Paul, and you're like, wow, this guy's intense. Sounds like a college professor. You read the prophet Jeremiah, and you're like, whoa, it's a much different personality, a completely unique voice. And then you just kind of start digging into it, and you're like, it's written in three different languages, Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, and now it's been translated a million times, and yet God has preserved and kept his word. A human and divine work. If it helps, that tension exists elsewhere in, in Christian faith, doesn't it? in the person of Jesus himself, fully human, fully divine. 
in a sense. And he, he is the word become flesh. In a sense, Jesus is the template for scripture. We see in him this tension of human and divine together in one thing. And so there's a lot of implications for us, and we talked specifically about the authority of Scripture last week. So if it's divine, if these Scriptures are inspired and breathed out by God, then they carry unique authority. God is speaking. Which means while we use culture to understand like the original intent, it can be helpful, that we can't over-culturalize the Bible. I have with some of my friends who, uh, who have a different view of Scripture or a different view of how to interpret certain passages, often I'll hear this line of reasoning like, well, you know, they didn't know, the writers of Scripture, they didn't know the things we know now. Particularly around issues of gender and human sexuality, you know, it, some people often will frame all of that like, well, you know, that was thousands of years ago and a patriarchal, like sort of repressed uh, culture. And so they just didn't know what we know about sexuality and gender these days. But then you just go, okay, but God did. Right? So if this is inspired by God, when, when you, you come to it and, and see Jesus in Matthew 19, and I don't want to just get too far off on this, but it's just a really good example for where our culture is cur- currently. When Jesus says God created them male and female and binds their sexuality within marriage, we can't just kind of excuse that away as like a cultural difference. We have to just go, like, well, that's the creator of humanity speaking about the very thing he created and how he designed it. And so those things can be hard to wrestle through. And I'm not saying culture doesn't matter because it it really is important in interpreting a lot of texts. These are written 2,000 years ago by a a unique people in their own language, but inspired by God, given to us today. So it's authoritative. What is the Bible? Third point, these become covenant documents. I don't know if you enjoyed reading about the covenants in Genesis. That's some of my favorite parts is coming to the covenant with Abraham and and wrestling through the intensity of what's happening in that story. Uh, We get to experience a similar thing as we're brought into the new covenant by the blood of Jesus that these become covenant documents for us. They, They sort of give us the boundaries and the framework for what it means to be the people of God. So we don't just get to make it up. I think this and you think that. We, we actually are given from God's mouth through his spirit uh, a binding document for our lives. Which means if we want to live in the way of Jesus, if we claim to be his followers, his disciples, that when we come to his word, that we're going to rejoice where it corrects us. We're going to submit where it commands us. And we're going to obey where it tells us. To Timothy, Paul writes, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So it shapes life for us. So you gotta read it, you gotta search it, know it. Amen? Okay. It's quiet in here. Let me close with a little story that I, uh, I well, an illustration that I've used, you know, I've said it three times up here now as we've done some discipleship training uh, and getting our discipleship group, groups up and running. I'm, I'm firmly convinced that we do so many good things as a church, so many good ministries, opportunities, events, teaching, but I'm just thoroughly convinced, Christian, that you gotta be here. You and the Lord searching him in scripture, praying to him, Jesus, by your spirit, reveal your truth to me. And study after study has shown that if you want to grow, if you want to be fed, that the most effective way you will grow and learn is when you sit down with the Word of God. 
And then parents, so we sit down with the word of God and show it to our children and engage them in the story in the same way. I'm just convinced we gotta be here. We have to be about this. We have to be a people of the book. And so one of our favorite things to do as a family is to go camping. Any campers? All right. Has anyone ever had a bear come in their campground? That would be horrifying. So I've been bear hunting and I have seen bears at Yellowstone, but I've not yet had the, the pleasure of being woken up in the middle of the night by one sort of sniffing and snuffling and trying to get to like my Jolly Ranchers inside my tent. That has not yet happened to me, but it happens all the time. So when you get to Yellowstone or you go to Glacier, you're gonna see signs and you can see a bunch of old uh, historical ones from the 60s. And then you're gonna see sign after sign after sign that says, don't feed the bears. Don't feed the animals. But we want to, right? Because it's awesome. I want to feed a moose out of my hand. That sounds cool. I'm out on bears. I don't want to feed a bear. But, uh, but many people have. Like there's these pictures from the 60s of, of these giant tour buses and there'll be like 10 black bears on their hind feet and people are hand feeding them peanut butter jelly sandwiches. I just saw it on social media just this last summer of a, you know, a couple people in their 20s who probably aren't going to live to be in their 40s feeding a bear a sandwich. Why don't you feed the bears? They, they won't feed themselves. They'll become dependent. Because, I mean, a donut is a lot better than tree bark. Which consists, that's the primary thing bears eat, tree bark. Donuts are a lot better, I agree. And once they get a taste for human food, and once they find out that that can be a source of food, they become nuisance animals, problems, and people get mauled. And I think the same is true for Christians. That if we forget how to feed ourselves, how to go to the source, how to go to Jesus, the bread of life, the fountain of life, if we lose that and become so dependent, you know, on a podcast or a book or 40 minutes on Sunday morning, it just will not be enough. And we will bite and devour and maul one another. We have to seek God in his word and be committed to it. It's a unified story that will point you to Jesus. It bears witness of him. It will make you wise for salvation in his name and become covenant documents, the way of life for us.